Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I want to welcome you to this brand new bi-monthly podcast celebrating DC Comics' finest female superheroes, the blonde bombshell known as Black Canary and the mistress of magic named Zatanna. If you're listening to this, well, first, bless you. There's a good chance you downloaded this episode as part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network feed. That's the home of some amazing podcasts, like Fire & Water and Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, both hosted by Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag, as well as Supermates by Chris and Cindy Franklin, Lonely Hearts and First Strike by Siskoid and the Canadians, and my own shows, Secret Origins and Give Me Those Star Wars, plus a whole lot more. Power of Fishnets is the latest addition to the Fire and Water Network. It's my personal indulgence in two of my favorite DC characters who just so happen to share a certain proclivity for fishnet stockings. Hey, not everyone wears a cape and cowl. Now that you know this podcast is going to be all about Black Canary and Zatanna, and not a more universally beloved character like, say, Firestorm, if you're still listening and you want to hear more... Again, bless you, good listener. Let me tell you a little bit about how the show came to be. Back in 2012, I started a fan blog dedicated to Black Canary called Flowers and Fishnets. Flowers because the canary, in her civilian identity as Dinah Lance, ran a flower shop. And fishnets because, well, my favorite part of her costume was her signature fishnet stockings. What else? At the time, I was following a lot of fan blogs and podcasts devoted to different DC characters, and I wanted to tackle one that wasn't receiving a lot of coverage anywhere else. I settled on Black Canary because she allowed me to cherry-pick stories from the Golden Age of Comics, where she was part of the Justice Society of America, the Silver and Bronze Age, where she joined the Justice League, and the Modern Era, with her appearances in Birds of Prey. In 2012, I honestly didn't know a whole lot about the character's history, but I was eager to learn. And I was rewarded, because I grew to love Black Canary the more I read about her. Last year, that is in 2015, because really I have no idea when you're going to be listening to this, I converted the blog into a podcast of the same name. I covered Black Canary's solo comic series from 1993 and the first five issues of her current ongoing series, as well as some of my favorite miscellaneous adventures, including her first origin in DC Special Series and her team-up with Superman in DC Comics Presents. The show was usually a lot of fun, but I got discouraged when I reviewed the Black Canary series from the 90s. It was pretty awful, and it sapped a lot of my enthusiasm. I decided to expand the podcast to include more than just Black Canary. I thought about adding Green Arrow comics, but Darren and Ruth Sutherland started Warlord World's podcast, covering the Mike Grell run on Green Arrow, which is my favorite era. Then, I glanced over at my bookshelf and noticed one particular Black Canary graphic novel that I hadn't covered on the podcast. 
Black Canary and Zatanna Blood Spell. The premise of this team-up was essentially a gimmick, partnering the two heroes best known for wearing fishnets. But once you get past the novelty, it's actually a really good story. Stick with me throughout this episode and I'll prove it to you. Black Canary and Zatanna, the perfect combination for a newly rebranded podcast. Power of Fishnets. Is it a gimmick? Yes, it absolutely is. But just like their team-up in Bloodspell, the content of their stories justifies this superficial pairing. I fell in love with Black Canary when I explored her publication history for Flowers and Fishnets. Likewise, when I dove into Zatanna's adventures, I found so much joy. Great stories told by some phenomenal artists. I am pumped about this new direction. So, going forward, Power of Fishnets will cover the appearances of both characters. Not together, of course, because that list is extremely limited to Bloodspell, a handful of Justice League of America, and one wacky backup in action comics that I'll get to eventually. Instead, this show will alternate its focus with even-numbered episodes devoted to Black Canary and odd-numbered episodes devoted to Zatanna. On episode 2, I'll review issues 6 and 7 of the new Black Canary series by Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. And on episode 3, I'll cover Zatanna's very first appearance in Hawkman issue 4 by Gardner Fox and Murphy Anderson. But today, we're going to start with the aforementioned graphic novel Bloodspell by Paul Dini and Joe Quinones. This episode is going to be quite a bit longer than an average installment. I mean, I would think. Bloodspell was 94 pages of story, compared to an average 20 or 22 page comic that I'll do on most episodes. But if, like me, you're of a particular mind to do a podcast about Black Canary and Zatanna, there is really no other place to start. This was, after all, the inspiration for this whole show. Alright, if you're still hanging with me, I'm going to take a quick promotional break to advertise some other great podcasts. I'll be back in a minute to tell you about Black Canary and Zatanna's first original graphic novel. Don't go away. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire and Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show, and I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins Podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network, and then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, The Black Canary and Zatanna Podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. 
I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first, so we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben, voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to. No, no, French French cannot be the Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? The Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, Shaman's Tears, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in the many excellent comics from writer and artist Mike Grell. Warlord Worlds is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Find us at warlordworlds.com. Zatanna, Bloodspell, is written by Paul Dini, with art by Joe Quinones, colors by Dave McKig, and letters by Sal Cipriano. It was published, of course, by DC Comics, and released on May 21, 2014. The story begins 15 years ago in the Himalayas. A young, short-haired Zatanna Zatara is ferried up Mount Everest in a carriage, borne by mysterious figures wearing orange cloaks. These are members of the Homo Magi, the innate magic users of the DC Universe, and they include Zatanna's mother and father. Zatanna utters the backward spell, Isair, 
and begins to rise up toward the summit of the mountain while wondering how different her childhood would be if she were at, say, a ballet recital. Zatara and his wife, Sindela, bask in what I assume is pride. Is that something parents feel? I don't know. Meanwhile, despite some hiccups, young Zatanna levitates all the way up to the summit of Mount Everest. The extreme heights and the magic spells hadn't broken her concentration, but imagine her surprise when she discovers she's not the first teenage girl to summit the mountain that day. Young Dinah Lance is at the top of Mount Everest practicing Tai Chi in a loose-fitting sweatsuit that is only slightly more appropriate for the climate than her usual fishnets. Zatanna asks Dinah how she got up there, to which Dinah replies simply that she climbed. Dinah then mocks Zatanna's explanation of her magic. When Zatanna explains that it demands serious mental and physical exertion to perform her spells, Dinah hits her in the head with a snowball. Zatanna retaliates by casting a spell that flips Dinah upside down and drops her on her butt. And then they're best friends, because, you know, that's how girls do. Their ages aren't specified in the book, but in the back matter that follows the story, it's suggested that Paul Dini imagined Dinah to be 16 years old in the scene and Zatanna to be 12. Later on, when the story jumps to present time, that would make Black Canary 31 years old and Zatanna 27, just for reference for the future. When the girls first meet, we learn a little bit about this version of Dinah's backstory. She's clearly run away and is now backpacking through Asia. She climbed Mount Everest more or less on a whim to test herself. She rolls over the subject of her parents and begins climbing back down the mountain, teasing Zatanna about the danger of yetis and snow leopards. Once Dinah has left, Zatanna starts to use her magic to descend back toward the Homo Magi. But her brief encounter with the precocious Dinah changed Zatanna. Or perhaps challenged would be the right word. Zatanna shucks her magic spells and decides to climb down the mountain using Dinah's ropes and rigging, doing it the hard way to see if she can. I'll stop there for a minute to go over these first eight pages. This prologue is as much as we get into the character's backstory before the plot really kicks in. Paldini establishes that Dinah has been feisty and combative from the get-go. There's obviously baggage between Dinah and her parents, since she's backpacking across Asia alone, but we get no mention of a previous blonde bombshell. This Dinah could even be an orphan like the New 52 version. It's certainly unclear whether this Dinah is the classic Dinah Drake or her daughter Dinah Laurel Lance. I'm inclined to believe the latter, but Paul Dini never introduces the legacy hero concept, and I think that's a good idea. This graphic novel could be some young or old reader's first exposure to Black Canary. Why overwhelm him or her with the senseless and complex backstory that is Dinah's history? All we need to know is that she's scrappy and she's willful. We also get a rare glimpse into Zatanna's youth and see how alienated she feels. Right away, she's comparing her mystical rite of passage to what other so-called normal kids have to go through. She describes this act as a magical bat mitzvah. But Paul Dini does something even more unexpected in the scene. He casts Zatanna as a sort of child star, child celebrity, and her parents as stage parents. Zatanna's a performer, but also the daughter of a performer. She grew up in theaters where you always have to be on. Couple that with the outsider nature of the Homo Magi, and we get a strong sense of social isolation from Zatanna. Black Canary might be the first so-called normal girl Zatanna has ever really talked to, so it's no wonder that this encounter challenges her to act differently, to test herself in ways that don't pertain to her magic. 
it's a great little note to cap the prologue. In the next scene, we jump forward and to the side. The time, one year ago. The place, Las Vegas. It's not unusual to be loved by anyone. It's not unusual to have fun with anyone. But when I see you hanging about with anyone, it's not unusual to see me A professional thief named Tina Spetro leads a gang of five other women into the sewers beneath a new casino called Xanadu. Before they start the job, Tina pricks all of their fingers with a needle and makes them recite a loyalty oath in blood. One of the girls in the gang tries to beg off the blood oath, but Tina is insistent, slash threatening, and the girl goes along with it. A little bit later, while Xanadu's owner, a rich gangster named Dale Hollister, addresses the crowd at the casino's grand opening, Tina Spetro sets her plan into motion. Which, interestingly enough, includes tipping off casino security about five ladies about to blow their way into the casino's vault from the sewer. You heard that right. Tina is selling out her crew. She doesn't care about the women in her gang. They were always sacrificial misdirection for the guards while she planned to steal some valuable Asian treasures on the main floor. Tina gets a bit of narration, and we learn her past connection to Dale Hollister. This heist is less about profit and more about hurting her ex-lover. What Tina didn't count on, though, was being triple-crossed by a member of her own gang. Joy, the girl who tried to avoid the blood oath, shows up in the treasure room and removes a ginger-haired wig, revealing she was Black Canary in disguise. The real Joy, and the other members of the gang, predicted Tina would try to betray them and called in Black Canary for help. Quick little note here, as we saw in the prologue when she was a kid, Dinah in this story is a natural blonde. She's not wearing a red wig over a blonde wig. I mean, what do you think this is, an issue of World's Finest? Anyway, Black Canary and Tina Spetro throw down in a pretty kick-ass hand-to-hand fight. Joe Quinones renders the action on a one-page montage of beats set against a white background that is obviously an homage to a very famous Black Canary page from Adventure Comics 418 drawn by Alex Toth. I'll put up both pages on the Fire & Water website post so you can compare. Tina realizes she can't win this fight after she throws a knife that Black Canary dodges, so Tina makes use of her getaway plan, which is a jetpack stored in the ventilation system. Seriously. As Tina rockets up the ventilation shaft, Black Canary catches her with a grappling hook that yanks her up. Dinah tries to bring her down with a sonic scream, her famous canary cry, but it has no effect on Tina, perhaps because of the noise of the jetpack or some other precaution. Tina detonates a set of explosives on the roof of Xanadu, giving her an exit to the Las Vegas night. She flies past hotels and casinos, as well as a sign for Prosciutto the Clown, a nice little easter egg for Batman the Animated Series fans. Tina tries to shake Black Canary off, and when that fails, she even tries crashing them at such velocity it would kill them both. Tina makes it obvious how perfectly fine she is with the prospect of dying. At last, she knocks Black Canary off her back. As Dinah plummets to the street, Tina swears that she'll have revenge on Canary and the other treacherous women from her gang. She recites the loyalty oath in Latin, and then crashes into the wall of a hotel, dying in a fiery explosion. <laughs> 
Black Canary, on the other hand, lands in the hotel's swimming pool and survives. A little banged up, but otherwise okay. She climbs out of the pool, towels herself off, and takes somebody's margarita. All in a day's work. I'll stop again right here, because after this scene we have another little time jump. I want to talk about the tone that Paul Dini establishes in the first quarter of the story. Dini knows Black Canary and Zatanna fairly well. He wrote Zatanna's ongoing series for a year, and before that, he wrote both of these women wonderfully in various incarnations of the DC animated universe. And this story feels almost like a grown-up version of the cartoon. There is a playfulness to it, but also maturity. The art by Joe Quinones could live in the same world as Bruce Timm, though you'd never confuse one for the other. But this is not a kid's story. It's not an all-ages adventure. We're dealing with some dark territory already, and it's going to get darker still. Dinah calls Tina Spetro a crazy bitch at one point, and Tina Spetro acts like it throughout their fight. I've said the story doesn't belong in the New 52, but you also can't pin it down to the pre-Flashpoint or pre-Crisis era. Bloodspell is part of its own pocket continuity, like Batman 66. I call it the nostalgic era. You read it, and it takes you back to the stories you loved as a kid, even if that time period never really existed. Anyway, we return to the story with a scene that establishes quite clearly that while this graphic novel may look cartoony, it is not an all-ages story. Dinah and her boyfriend, Oliver Queen, better known as Green Arrow, are in bed after making loud, passionate love. Whatever finishing move Ollie used elicited a canary cry of ecstasy that shatters a flower vase in another room. You know, I've often questioned Dinah's taste in men, especially a blowhard like Ollie, but he clearly knows what he's doing in the bedroom. Their relationship has always been highly sexualized and replete with innuendo, but when Dinah complains that Ollie doesn't cuddle after the act, and she'd be better off with one of his frequency-matching arrows, well, I don't think Paul Dini ever wrote a masturbation joke that overtly in the days of Justice League Unlimited. So, they're watching TV in bed, and Dinah overhears the news of a suicide victim named Megan Taylor. Dinah recognizes the name as one of the girls in Tina Spetro's gang. Right after the story of Megan's suicide breaks on TV, Dinah gets a phone call from Betty Jo, yet another one of Spetro's accomplices. Dinah dresses hurriedly while Betty Jo explains that Megan left a suicide note apologizing for her portrayal in Las Vegas a year ago. Then, abruptly, Betty Jo's tone of voice changes, and she tells Dinah she intends to throw herself off the harbor ferry. Black Canary jumps on her motorcycle and roars down the highway. She ramps the bike up and over the side of the bridge, coming down on the ferry and skidding to a halt against the fender of a parked car. Have I mentioned how much I love Black Canary on a motorcycle? We all have our own little kinks and fetishes. To me, there are few things sexier than a woman who knows how to ride a bike. Also, you know, the fishnets. And Joe Quinones makes her look damn good. So, Black Canary finds Betty Jo leaning out over the railing of the ferry. She warns the girl what will happen if she goes over the side, a prospect that seems to excite Betty Jo for a moment. Then, all of a sudden, Betty Jo seems to snap out of it and wonder where she even is. She's so distracted that she loses her grip on the railing and falls, and Black Canary watches the girl get dragged beneath the boat. Dinah noticed Betty Jo's change of character on the phone and in the moment before she died, and now she's afraid that the late Tina Spetro is somehow responsible. 
The canary picks up Green Arrow, and the two head out looking for Lauren, another member of the Spectro gang. Along the way, Dinah makes fun of Ollie for getting rid of his old Arrowmobile because Batman gave him a hard time about it. They ride out to a mobile home community, because Lauren isn't answering her phone. Green Arrow notices a power strip leading from Lauren's house to the swimming pool, and when they investigate further, they find the pool filled with electrical appliances. And Lauren's lifeless body. Something that Dini and Quinonas give us consistently in this section is the look of horror and the feeling of defeat on Dinah's face. We don't know these women, they're just victims to set the plot in motion. But Dinah did know them. They asked her for help a year ago, and she thought she saved them. Now she's discovering how powerless she was to protect them, and it's devastating. One of the things I've always loved about Black Canary is her compassion and loyalty. It's what makes her a great friend to someone like Oracle. It makes her a big sister to people like Roy Harper when he was kicking his heroin addiction, and ditto in the current Black Canary series. Dinah is a protector and a nurturer, so these murders really hit her hard. When they find Lauren dead, Green Arrow notices a bizarre tattoo on the girl's arm. Black Canary doesn't recognize the symbol, but she knows someone who might. present-day Zatanna leads a kind of seance in a dark room, surrounded by shadowy spectators. She sits in a circle of candles and speaks the incantation, I call upon the demons of the deep, hear my prayer and respond. Give us that which we desire, give us that which will raise our spirits. Evig su et siknam. Hang on, wait, did Zatanna just summon monkeys? She sure did. She summoned monkeys. For kids. Black Canary catches up with her old friend performing a free magic show for some orphans. Trust me, it's even cuter than it sounds. Dinah watches Zatanna play with the kids and muses over how far Zatanna has come since their first meeting 15 years ago. Cut to 10 years ago. Zatanna's first time aboard the Justice League of America's satellite headquarters. This was very early in her superhero career. The first impression Zatanna made was describing the League's teleportation tube as tingly, and after that she embarrasses herself in front of the Martian Manhunter with a nerd faux pas. Collectively, the auspices of Zatanna's debut with the Justice League were not terribly impressive. And that is when the sirens go off. The dastardly Silver Age villain known as The Key is loose in the satellite and looking to spring other supervillains from the JLA's detention block. Black Canary and Zatanna are the prison's last line of defense, something that Zatanna doesn't think she's ready to handle. The Key knocks out Elongated Man and confronts the ladies, mocking Zatanna for dressing like a cocktail waitress. Black Canary attacks, but he's able to club her with his, um, giant key. 
And then, just when it appears he's going to blast her in the face with his, um, giant key, Zatanna speaks the magic words, Siek, Siek, Sinav, and the key's keys vanish. Having magically stolen the villain's arsenal, Zatanna doffs her top hat and takes a bow, at which point all of the keys fall out of her hat and clatter on the floor. The key dives at her feet, reaching for his, um, giant key, when the Green Lantern shows up and knocks him out with a powering punch. Dinah introduces Zatanna to Hal Jordan, who welcomes her to the Justice League and asks if they can call her Z. This is the fourth different time period we've seen in Bloodspell so far, and we'll see more before the story is over. I wanted to give a shout-out to Joe Quinonas again, who delineates each different era expertly by changing the ladies' costumes and hairstyles. Satana's hair gets longer as she ages, while Black Canary's hair length kind of fluctuates. I think it's longest during the satellite sequence, and just over shoulder length for most of the majority of the story. For some reason, the way Quinonas draws Dinah reminds me a lot of the actress Elizabeth Shue. Not sure if that was his intention, or if that's just my reading of it. But anyway, we come back to the present time where Zatanna is signing autographs for the kids. She can tell that something is bothering Dinah, so they do what women are supposed to do in order to feel better. They go shopping. Paldini treats us to a rather obvious joke as the ladies restock on fishnet stockings, but Quinona sells it with a storefront design that looks like a Victoria's Secret homage called Seams and Dreams. Then the women are harassed by some mall rats who holler at them. Zatanna responds to the catcalls by magically transforming the men into goldfish for the pool. The spell is only temporary, but even so, it feels wildly overreactive. These guys weren't a threat, they were just being pardon the term, douchebags. Zatanna could have ignored them like any reasonable person would. Instead, she used her powers to change their behavior, albeit not mentally, like she's done in the past, but rather through an object lesson. That's still a pretty questionable use of her immense power. This is my least favorite part in the whole story. The one slightly saving grace is I'm pretty sure the two guys Zatanna performs are modeled after Paul Dini and Joe Quinones themselves. Definitely Dini. I've never seen Joe before in person. But the team follows this moment with one of my favorite scenes, because the next part is all fan service, as Dinah and Z visit a toy store with a window display full of Justice League merchandise. Yeah, there are toys of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Satellite, Doctor Fate, Plastic Man, Green Arrow, Black Canary, and Miss Martian. Wait. Yeah, Miss Martian. But the real treat are the vehicles and playsets that Quinona's added to the display. Along with the classic Batmobile are straight-up cameos by the superpowers line such as the Supermobile, the Lexor 7, the Hall of Justice, and the Tower of Darkness. It's awesome! And after teasing each other about their merchandising choices, Dinah and Z go to a TGI Friday-style restaurant where the waitstaff is covered in flair. Dinah shows Zatanna the tattoo on Lauren's arm and tells her about Tina Spetro and the loyalty oath she swore. Zatanna, in a fright, suddenly freezes time all around them and tells Dinah she didn't pledge a loyalty oath. Tina tricked her into a blood spell, and that's kind of a big deal. Zatanna admits that she doesn't know enough about that kind of magic. 
With time still frozen around them, she calls on her greatest resource, summoning the ghost of her father, Giovanni Zatara, for guidance. Zatara breaks it down for the ladies. The magic of the blood spell bonded Tina Spetro to all the women in her gang, so that even after her death, her spirit could possess them. Dinah has a slight advantage in that she was in disguise at the time of the spell, and gave it under a false identity. Zatara says that will keep Tina at bay for a little while, but the more damage Tina does, like possessing the other ladies and forcing them to die right in front of Dinah, for instance, the more her power grows, and soon she will be able to claim Black Canary too. Zatara and Zatanna agree that in order to break the blood spell, Tina's spirit needs to be contained or destroyed. That means capturing her in the act of possessing or trying to kill another one of the girls in her gang. Zatara's ghost bids them luck, kisses his daughter on the cheek, and vanishes back into the netherworld, where, apparently, he was fooling Houdini with a simple sleight-of-hand trick. Speaking of which, we flash back yet again, this time to five years ago on the dread world of Apocalypse. The sadistic Granny Goodness and her female furies had captured Black Canary, Zatanna, Wonder Woman, and Plastic Man. The heroes were bound in Granny's gladiatorial arena and subjected to one of her elaborate death traps that Mr. Miracle cut his teeth escaping from. Granny mocks Zatanna's reputation for tricks while the Princess of Prestidigitation's mouth is covered by part of Plastic Man, no less, preventing her from uttering any of her spells. But at the last second before the trap is sprung, the captive heroes swap places with Granny and the Furies. Zatanna explains that while her mouth might have been covered and her body was tied up, her hands were free, and she could cast the spell using sign language backwards. How freaking cool is that? This little three-page vignette had no story connection to the rest of the tale. All it does, though, is show off Zatanna's resourcefulness and quick thinking. And it gives Quinonas a chance to draw our lovely heroines in different costumes, as well as a few more heroes and villains from the DC stable. So back to the main story. Dinah and Z ride back to Las Vegas in Zatanna's enchanted trailer, which is towed by an enchanted car that drives on its own. Inside the trailer, Dinah takes a nice, refreshing bubble bath while trying not to arouse the displeasure of Zatanna's pet tiger, Sasha. Zatanna's plan calls for them to travel to Vegas undercover so as not to warn Tina's ghost that Z is helping Dinah save the victims of the blood spell. But the undercover part involves Dinah posing as Zatanna's magician's assistant. And that involves Dinah wearing a showgirl outfit even skimpier and more revealing than most female superheroes wear. Zatanna casts a magic makeover spell that puts Dinah in the costume, changes her face slightly, changes her hair color, and enhances her bust to Power Girl levels. The ladies arrive at Xanadu in Las Vegas and meet the hotel's owner, Dale Hollister, the same man that Tina planned to rob before she died. Zatanna fills him in on the situation with Tina's ghost, and in gratitude for Black Canary's earlier service, he offers to book Zatanna and her assistant in one of his showrooms to help set the trap for Tina. But as Hollister and Zatanna shake on the agreement, her tiger freaks out and lunges at them both, slashing at them with his massive paws and drawing blood from each of their forearms. Zatanna reprimands the animal, which immediately seems confused and unaware of its prior attack. Zatanna casts a healing spell on herself and Hollister, who seems none the worse for wear. That night, Zatanna performs her magic act for a 
packed house of spectators. Her tricks include making Sasha the tiger vanish and reappear small enough to fit in her hand. Dinah watches the show from the wings. While backstage, someone passes her a note from Dottie, the second-to-last surviving member of Tina's gang, asking for a meeting at her place that night. If Dinah and Z were expecting a desperate woman when they meet Dottie, they're a little shocked to find a woman who has, for all intents and purposes, given up. Dottie explains how crummy her life has been in the past year, and while she doesn't exactly welcome death from the vengeful ghost, but she doesn't feel like her life is all that worth living. Dottie even goes so far as to ask Zatanna to change her into something else, like an animal, so she could move on with a completely different life. Zatanna refuses to cast that type of magic spell and explains that that sort of transformation spell is nearly irreversible, because within hours the human brain begins to cede its faculties to animal instinct. After a few days, she explains what remains of the human mind and soul would be totally supplanted by the animal, and Dottie would be essentially dead and gone. Instead, Zatanna plans to cast a mystical protection spell around Dottie, but as she speaks the words, she inexplicably casts a different spell that transforms Dottie into glass. Dinah reacts to Zatanna's sudden betrayal, and in that moment succumbs to her anger and becomes possessed by Tina's ghost. Tina slash Dinah then tries to shatter the glass Dottie, but Zatanna recovers just in time and casts a protection spell that kicks Tina's ghost out of Dinah. Tina's ghost curses the ladies and announces her intention to kill Joy, the last name on her list, before destroying Black Canary completely. Dinah asks Z to undo the glass spell on Dottie, but instead, Zatanna uses her magic to send the glass Dottie to Superman's Fortress of Solitude, with a note for the Man of Steel to keep it safe. I mean, I guess that's as good a place for safekeeping as any. I didn't know the fortress was ghost-proof, but sure, why wouldn't it be? Zatanna figures that Tina can now possess both her and Black Canary, but only one at a time, which means they still have a chance of stopping her. They rush back to the Xanadu showroom, where Dale Hollister has been possessed by Tina's ghost. She's using Hollister to murder Joy with one of Zatanna's stage traps, because, well, since Joy switched out for Black Canary during the heist last year, she never actually took part in the blood spell. Tina gives a villain monologue about how her ghost was able to jump into Zatanna's tiger, Sasha, because it's easy for ghosts to possess animals. She already had a pseudo-blood spell with Hollister from their time as lovers, and when Sasha slashed Hollister and Zatanna, it was like a backdoor blood spell that gave her access to one of the most powerful sorcerers in the world. Tina slash Zatanna turns on the machine set to kill Joy, then casts a spell turning Hollister into a toad. Before she can squash him under heel, though, Black Canary jumps her, gagging her so she can't say any spells. Tina fights her off, but then Dinah releases the tiger on her mistress. When the tiger leaps at Zatanna, the ghost bolts from the magician and takes over Black Canary. Tina then jumps back and forth, back and forth between the women, using each one to attack the other, but not being able to stay in one form for too long because the tiger can sense which woman is possessed and attacks that woman. It's a wild, kinetic, crazy, but not confusing fight. At last, Tina jumps into Black Canary and uses her sonic scream to blow Zatanna off the stage and into the orchestral pit below. When she follows her down, she finds Zatanna curled up, nearly catatonic. Tina's ghost then leaps into the prone form of Zatanna, 
only to discover, too late, that she's been duped. That wasn't Zatanna's body. The real Zatanna pops up and casts a containment spell. Nyetnoksog! And thus traps the malevolent spirit of Tina Spetro in the body that was magically charmed to look like Zatanna, but was, in fact, a dove from her performance. Tina's spirit is now trapped in the body of a bird. Before the ladies can rest on their laurels, though, they remember that Joy is still in the danger of being butchered by a giant drill. Black Canary leaps into action, freeing Joy from the trap and saving her. Zatanna casts another spell, reverting Dale Hollister back to his human form. Luckily, he wasn't trapped in the form of an animal long enough to lose his mind and soul. Unlike Tina Spetro. As the sun comes up over the Nevada desert, Tina is totally supplanted by the bird. Her spirit, at last, is dead. They release her to the wind, nothing but a dove now, a threat to nothing but statues. Before the ladies can head off to a margarita bar, Black Canary gets a call from Green Arrow, telling her that Metropolis is under attack from alien robots. The Justice League needs their help. And with a magic incantation, Zatanna and Black Canary head off to their next adventure. The end. I put a spell on you. talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is Romance Comics Theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. A quick note before I get into my overall impressions of the book... I called this a graphic novel several times, and that is the correct terminology. Some people get uptight about the term graphic novel because what it technically means is an original story published in a single volume that is of a size or page count greater than an average comic. Now, the single volume part is key because most comics published today will be collected in a bunch and reprinted as a trade paperback or hardcover collection. Those books are not graphic novels, they're just collections. They were printed serially first. Generally, I don't care about this distinction. If people want to refer to Alan Moore's Watchmen or Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns as the greatest graphic novels of the 20th century, who cares? They're wrong, but who cares? 
The only reason I bring it up is to emphasize that Bloodspell is a graphic novel. This wasn't a four-issue miniseries that got collected. DC printed the story all as one tale, first released as a hardcover, with a dust jacket and a slightly embossed fishnet pattern on the front cover under the jacket. This is kind of a big deal. True graphic novels are pretty rare among mainstream superhero comics. Unless your name is Batman. For DC to give this fancy treatment to a pair of lesser-known characters, and women at that, which almost never sell as well as their male counterparts, like I said, kind of a big deal. Bloodspell is 94 story pages, but there are nearly 40 pages of added content in both the hardcover, softcover, and digital versions of this graphic novel. The extras include character sketches and sample pages in various stages of the art process by Joe Quinones, and a copy of Paul Dini's full script for the book. It is awesome material that I recommend to any fan who enjoyed hearing this story. So, what were my overall thoughts on Bloodspell? I kind of loved it. As I mentioned earlier, Paul Dini knows the characters so well that everything they do feels in character. Like their iterations in the DC Animated Universe, these are iconic and timeless versions of Black Canary and Zatanna. That's what a Paul Dini story feels like. Whether it's a cartoon, or a video game, or a book painted by Alex Ross, the characters feel timeless, infused with all the greatest attributes of the Silver and Bronze Age. But this script moves with a modern, easily readable pace and tone. My only complaint with Dini's story, though, is that the villain isn't all that memorable. Neither Black Canary nor Zatanna have much in the realm of go-to villains, so when I first heard about this book, I was hoping it would contribute a real heavy hitter to their rogues galleries. Tina Spetro is decent, but she'll never be used again after this story. Her costume is a simple, drab, gray jumpsuit, not exactly a visual feast, and for most of the story, she exists solely as a spirit inhabiting other characters. She'll forevermore be counted as an enemy of Black Canary and Zatanna, but she won't add a lot to them. As for the art, Quinones mostly knocks it out of the park. He first caught my eye back in Wednesday's comics a couple years ago, where he drew the Green Lantern strip. I was really excited to see what he would bring to this story. Given Dini's storytelling sensibilities, it seemed obvious that Quinones would bring a lighter, almost animated style, like Bruce Timm or Darwin Cook, to the art. It fits the story, and Quinones brings an incredible amount of expressiveness to each of the characters. There is never a question of what the women and men are thinking and feeling in every single panel. And yet, part of me wanted something a little more from the art. Black Canary and Zatanna are beautiful women known for wearing fishnets. They are sexual and sexualized characters and I kind of expected more cheesecake from the story. I'm not saying I would have preferred Ed Menes or Greg Land on this book, don't get me wrong, but I thought there would be more good girl art style imagery. The only time Dinah's sexuality is really played up in the story is when Zatanna makes her over to look like a buxom assistant that deliberately doesn't look like Black Canary. Instead of sexiness, Quinones emphasizes the toughness of Black Canary. Nothing wrong with that. It makes her a more credible hero and probably a more compelling and likable protagonist. But sometimes, just a few times, she looks a little too square-jawed and so spunky that she's not really all that attractive. It's not often, but it is noticeable in a handful of panels. Black Canary should be powerful and beautiful. But Quinones, unlike most people in comics over the years, sacrifices the latter for the former a couple times in this book. 
Now, one other thing I found interesting when I read this book. A lot of Justice League members make cameos throughout the story. Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Elongated Man, Plastic Man. You know who wasn't on that list? Batman. Other than as a toy in the background of one panel, Batman does not appear in this story. And that's pretty surprising given Paul Dini's history with the character. Hell, it's even more surprising given that it's DC Comics. They fire people for not putting Batman in their books. So yeah, I loved this graphic novel. It had tons of fun character beats and visual treats that evoked an older era of DC superheroes that I really miss. The story itself was mature, but not grimdark like so many modern DC comics are. I almost wish it was a little more all-ages friendly, because this would be a great story for young readers, especially young girls, but I can't really recommend it to anyone that young. I mean, the language is pretty clean except for a few uses of the word bitch. There's no really graphic violence or sex, although we do get that post-coital scene with Dinah and Ollie. Heck, let me put it this way. There's nothing in Bloodspell you wouldn't find on one of the CW shows like Arrow or The Flash. So if you've got a son or daughter who is cool with that level of content, this book will be no problem. And I think that is going to be all for this first episode of Power of Fishnets. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a great time talking about this book, and I'm really excited to spend more time with Black Canary and Zatanna on future episodes. I hope you come back for more. Power of Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at BlackCanaryFan, or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed in the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and Iva Isain Yad.